Good morning. I'll tell you, Jay, the, uh, the psalm you, you read earlier, wherever he went, there he is. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. And I tell you, this morning, guys, that's my testimony. I woke up last night about 1.30. My throat was like, I mean, I thought I had strep throat. It was terrible. And I just prayed. I just said, you know, Lord, if this be your will, then so be it. And I'm sure you've got a plan. And woke up at 6 and everything was great. My voice is still a little different. So pray for me that uh, that will hold up. But God is good. And whether or not He heals, He always sustains His people. And... Uh, so my name is John Westrope. I am one of the four pastors um, here at Sojourn. I was, uh, I guess, the original pastor. I used to do this a lot. Um, haven't done it a lot recently, and I, I don't uh, necessarily regret that. I think Dylan does a great job, Jay and Jim, um, when they preach. Um, I am just so overjoyed uh, when I look at this church and I just see the people and what's happening and how people are being built up in the Word and how they're ministering and loving each other. And um, I don't need to be up here. Um, at times I do because I'm a pastor and pastors should preach at times. Um, but we have guys that are well equipped to do this and it's a privilege for me to stand up here um, in some pretty big shoes um, and, and do this this morning. So um, we're going to look at First Corinthians today, um, the map's there, we're going to get to that in a second. Uh, by way of introduction, and this is an introduction, so we're going to get a lot of context um, a lot of history, just a lot of facts surrounding the culture of the people, what was going on in that time, um, so that hopefully we'll have a better foundation of understanding um, where Paul was and who he was writing to and even what some of the things um, he says in this letter, um, what they really mean. Um, I think the context um, is really important um, in interpretation and, and I think I'm not alone in that. So we're going to look a lot at that this morning and we're going to get into the first three verses um, towards the end. But Corinthians was a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul. And as many of you know, Paul was a converted Pharisee. Um, he had an encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus and went on to become probably one of the greatest missionaries, if not the greatest missionary the world's ever seen. Um, pretty amazing man. God did a pretty amazing work in his heart. Um, and I think we can safely say that he wrote this letter somewhere in the mid-50s. Um, it was after he left Corinth that he wrote it. Um, about two or three years probably from Ephesus that he wrote this letter. And I think it's interesting to look, if you look at Paul's life and just his travels and his missionary journeys, it's interesting to look at how he made his choices um, and where he traveled. He would always find a city that was central to the area um, and go there and start his ministry. Um, so when we track those journeys, we see that, that his strategy was always to find like a really heavily populated area, a, a place that was unreached for one, um, and then just start preaching the gospel. And just about every time, with the exception of Philippi, and even there, he found a group of women who were worshiping God by the river. But just every time other than Philippi, he would find a synagogue. And he would go to the synagogue and he would start preaching the gospel. And, uh, and he knew the scene. It was common ground. It was wise. I mean, he knew what happened in the synagogue. In fact, some historians think that before Paul was converted, when he stood and held... The, the, the cloak of Stephen as Stephen was being beaten to death they believed that Paul was on a fast track to being the synagogue ruler and that he was in the same synagogue as Stephen was now you can't prove that but there's some, there's some things that, that surround um, that situation that would lead someone to believe that um, Paul was well versed he knew how to talk to these people he knew the scriptures he was a Pharisee of Pharisees and so he would go and his pattern was going straight to the synagogue and he would preach because Paul knew, as he tells us in Romans 1.16, that the power of God for salvation for all men is the gospel. And so he started there. He started with the gospel. And he was always very strategic. Um, and you see in, in 1 Thessalonians 1.6-9, Paul talks about it. He talks about um, how the gospel is going out. And you see that, that that strategy paying off and that he would find these areas and he would start preaching and there would be people coming to and and going from and trading and, and, and vacationing or whatever they did. And he would preach the gospel. And some of these people would hear it and they would believe. And they would go back to their hometowns. And they would start preaching the gospel. And they would start making disciples. And in 1 Thessalonians 6, or 1, 6 through 9, he says, And you became imitators of us, speaking of himself and probably the apostles, and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, 
so that we need, we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And guys, this should challenge us. I mean, the way Paul approached ministry should be a challenge to us today. It's, it's how we should approach ministry. Because I have to ask myself, am I, am I living a strategic life? Am I thinking about my faith? Am I considering that in what I do? I mean, Paul did. And he says, follow me as I follow Christ. So Christ must have, right? Obviously he did. I think far too often, guys, we find ourselves content with, with just making sure we're driving the speed limit. Or, or making sure we're paying our taxes. Or you know, just conforming and being a good citizen. And don't get me wrong, those, those things are good things. We, we should definitely render unto Caesar the things that, that are Caesar's. We should obey our government and obey the laws so long as they don't ask us to compromise our faith. But guys, are, are we rendering to God, to the Lord, the things that are the Lord's? And that's what Paul was doing. He was, he was selling out. His life was given to God. And he was thinking about everything he did, every step he made. He was thinking about how he could impact the greatest amount of people. Are we doing that? Now, was he doing that 100% of the time? Paul wasn't perfect, no. But man, it's obvious. He wrote half the New Testament. You read his letters and you see his heart and you just see how the man thought. And it's just so impressive and it challenges me and it should challenge all of us. Are we being strategic with our lives? Do we have a burning desire to share the gospel in whatever context we're in? Wherever we travel, wherever we go, are we thinking about that? Is that the foremost thought in our minds? We should pray that it should be because, guys, I can, I can confess that's, that's not me a lot of the times. I get caught up in the business of life and I don't, I don't remember who I am. I don't remember that I'm in Christ and that there's, there's a mission greater than TM Consulting. Or then fill in the blank. It's the mission of sharing the gospel and Paul knew it and he lived it. Are we making time for our neighbors? Are we allowing room in our checkbook to give to people in need? Are we finding people like Paul did, that people that we have things in common with? Inroads, so to speak. Are we thinking about how we live? I think we do well to follow his example. God help us to. We don't have time to waste, right? This life is short. Well, if you take a look at Corinth, if you guys want to cue the map real quick. Um, Corinth was the capital city of Achaia, the, the province of Achaia, um, which was a Roman province. It was about, I think, around 40 of those at the time. Um, just, you know, pieces of land divided up under Rome. They weren't really like states, like what we have as far as government, but think of it that way. It was, was kind of like a state. It was a province. Corinth was the capital. Um, and it definitely fit the mold for the kind of place that Paul would pick to start a ministry and to start a church. Um, it was an extremely diverse city. Uh, Corinth had culture, I mean, activities, entertainment, like you name it, it had it. Um, it was probably one of the most diverse cities other than Athens in, Athens in Greece. I mean, it was, it was the place to go other than Athens. Um, one writer wrote, uh, one historian wrote, he said, Corinth was a city where Greeks, Latins, Syrians, Asiatics, Egyptians, and Jews bought and sold, labored and reveled, quarreled and hobnobbed in the city and its ports as nowhere else in Greece. And that includes Athens. I mean, it was a busy, busy place. And there were a lot of people that traveled through there. And this is why, if you look, you see that, that Greece, and you can kind of see a zoomed out uh, picture there on the bottom right, but Greece was kind of divided into two parts, kind of the northern and southern part. And the southern part was the Peloponnese, is what they call it. And there's that, that isthmus there where Corinth is kind of located, right at the base of that southern um, part there. The isthmus is four and a half miles wide. Okay, so that's, that's not a lot of land. And, and what would happen is during that time, the trade going to and from Athens would, would go right through or right by Corinth. All of it going north and south. And also you had... You had trade coming east and west by ship. And so the sailors figured this out. If you look down towards the bottom there in the bottom right, to sail around that southern cape, it was like 250 miles. And it was dangerous. I mean, the waters were dangerous. A lot of ships were sunk and a lot of people died trying to make that route. And so what they would do is they would, they would dock their ships on one of the gulfs and they would roll them across the land. 
They had rollers. I don't know. I couldn't find a picture. But, I mean, they were smart. So they figured it out. And I'm sure there were businesses that were ready to help. Guys that docked and wanted to roll their ships across. And so they would roll them across four and a half miles. And then they, they would take off either in the Saronic Gulf or the Gulf of Corinth, whichever, whichever direction um, they were going. Um, and they'd be on their way. And they would avoid a really, really treacherous sail around the southern Peloponnese there. And so... If you think about, it, I mean, pretty much, I mean, in that area of the world, like Corinth was like a hub for for all trade, going, coming, and going from all directions. And so you just had a ton of, of of people coming from other countries and cultures represented, and you know, people traveling through there at times, saying, you know what, I'd like to live here. And then they put down roots, and they don't even speak the language. And I mean, you, it was just linguistically diverse, culturally, religiously. I mean, it was. A variety of things in Corinth that you could find. I mean, it was just unbelievable. I'm um, just reading the history, um, the surrounding the city. It was just unbelievable what was what was there and what you could do there. And so, um, so Paul picked this because obviously it was a major place for people to go. And if you consider, like we said earlier, you consider all the traffic and the trade coming through, you can only imagine um, the opportunity that you had there. Um, and Paul saw it as an opportunity. Um, you could get your religious fix there. I mean, Corinth was a was a was a place where um, most major cities at the time in this area they had um, what they called the the oh the uh, not the Acro Corinth what is it the uh, the Acropolis I think is what it was yeah the it was the Acro Corinth it was it was what they called it in Corinth but um, in other places they it would just it would just be the Acropolis and it was basically um, a place that was built so that the people in the city if they were attacked um, they could go and they could seek refuge. Uh, from the invading army. Well, in Corinth, um, they called it the Acro Corinth, and it was huge. And it sat on top of this massive, like, 2,000-foot-tall piece of rock. And you could see it. Some sailors would testify that you could see it from, like, 40 miles away, sailing up to the Gulf. And in that temple, or in that Acro Corinth, was the temple of Aphrodite. And Aphrodite was considered the goddess of love. And so what would happen is there were, there were basically prostitutes, about a thousand priestesses is what they called them that lived in that temple and so they would come down in the evenings and do their thing at night and then they would go back up during the day and people would go up to the temple to see the priestesses um, it was an extremely extremely pagan worldly place um, I mean if, if you think about Las Vegas I mean I, I think that's really kind of what you're looking at and I know there's some good things and there were some good things about Corinth there were some good people there were people that loved God, but there was a lot of bad things going on. And, and that's Las Vegas is probably the closest comparison we have today. And I, don't, I, I think it's got some room to go. Corinth was crazy. I mean, the history surrounding that place, it's, it's, it's an interesting read. Um, one historian said this. He said, the ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual. Do, do we focus on individualism here in this country? I mean... The reckless development of the individual, the merchant who made his gain by all and every means, the man of pleasure surrounding himself, or surrendering himself to every lust, the athlete steeled to every bodily exercise and proud in his physical strength. These are the true Corinthian types. In a word, these were men who recognized no superior and no law but their own desires. Sounds like he's describing our culture. Honestly, guys. I mean, it sounds like he's kind of hitting it right on the head. You might need some still toe boots for the study because uh, I tell you, even just prepping the intro, like my toes were, toes were stepped on a lot, um, and just reading all this that surrounds the culture because I can see a lot of these things in our lives today. Um, in fact, I think First Corinthians could be the epistle that, practically speaking, applies more to to this day and age, our church in this day and age, than any other epistle in the New Testament. Now, theologically. You want to look at Romans and Ephesians, but practically speaking, the problems they had, I mean, they're the same problems we have today. You see them everywhere, and we're going to get into those. Um, so needless to say, Corinth was a, was a very evil place. Um, and it's interesting, in, in, in those times, there was a word that was coined, and it meant to Corinthianize. And it was unique. I mean, there was no other word like this that, that was used to describe a city. And it meant that basically if someone were to just completely turned, I mean, just as corrupt and evil as they could be. Um, people would say that they, they'd become Corinthianized. I mean, that's how bad this place was. Just full of sensuality, immorality, drunkenness, and so forth. In fact, the root word means to go to the devil. 
To, to be Corinthianized means that you went to the devil. And so if you've heard people use the phrase in, in modern day, you know, something's going to hell. You would hear someone say that, yeah, that, that guy's just gone to hell with his life. Well, that's, that's what they're saying, is that that guy's gone to hell. Like, he is associated with the things of hell. And those people didn't even really have an accurate understanding of what hell was. But that is what you were saying when you would talk about someone that had been Corinthianized. That was the, that was the perception of that city um, from outsiders. So in light of all the evil and the worldliness and the sensuality and all the stuff, and there's a long list of things we could describe, the thing that struck me is this one-time Pharisee, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who was the righteous of the righteous, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He looks at this city and under the influence of the Holy Spirit, thought to himself, what a great place to start a family. Wow. Would we look at a place like that and think that? I mean, how challenging. He looked at Corinth and he, and he saw through all those things and he saw the potential to get the gospel in those people's lives. And that's what he did because he'd been transformed by it. He knew the power and he brought it to him. And, and it's just, I just can't wait to get into it. Um, so in Galatians 3.22, Paul says this. He says, But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And that sums it up, guys. Paul didn't see the city of Corinth, the people in Corinth, he didn't see them as any worse than any other person that didn't know Jesus. The Scripture has imprisoned everything. Everything under sin. These people were unreached. And, and he saw through their lifestyles. He saw through their sin. He said they need the gospel. And he went. And we get to read about it. We get to read about his interactions. And we get to, through the Holy Spirit. Paul writes this letter. Writes four actually. And we get two of them in the New Testament. And we get to see how he interacted with his people. How he discipled them. How he challenged them. Encouraged them. Exhorted them. Confronted them. Disciplined them. And we can learn so much. Because see guys. Paul had been radically transformed by the gospel. I mean, can you imagine what the religious Jews thought of Corinth at that time? Can you imagine, like, the temptation that Paul would have, maybe in his flesh, and that old nature, to look at that city and be like, God, just burn it. Like, Sodom and Gomorrah, just bring the fire. Because you know that was probably the thought. Even from the Jews that lived in the city, when they could look and see what was going on, that was probably the thought that they had. But that wasn't the thought that drove Paul. In fact, you see in Acts 18, 9-11, you see the Lord speaking to Paul one night in a vision. He says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word among them. Eighteen months he spent in Corinth teaching. As what a merciful and gracious God we serve. He knew everything that was going on in Corinth. He knew the sin better than anyone else did. He knew the sin better than the guy that coined the word Corinthianize. And he looked at the city and he said, I'm going to send my messenger and I'm going to bring him the gospel. That is amazing. Like, that was me. So Paul looked at the city and by the power of the Holy Spirit he wasn't dissuaded. He just had to go. Um, now the scripture, if you, if you read it, it's pretty cool because we get, we get an account of Paul's activities in the book of Acts. <clears throat> and you see, leading up to his time in Corinth, Paul was coming off some pretty major disappointments. I mean, he saw some victory, but he was coming off some pretty major disappointments. And so I just want to, I just kind of want to read in Acts 17 and 18. Kind of the account of Paul's missionary journeys leading up to and, and actually covering through his time at Corinth. So if we just start in chapter 17, this is going to be a lot of scripture here, but we're going to get through it. Um, Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 1. It says, Now when they had passed through the Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. 
And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring him out to the crowd. And when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they had heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, when Jews, now, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So you see there, these Jewish zealots are just chasing him around. Kind of like what Paul did before he was converted. They're doing to him what he did to others. And it's, it's I mean, it's, it's having an impact. Of course, God is sovereign and he's doing what he wants to do. But Paul's in the middle of that. He's being chased around. I mean, he's being persecuted. It's, it's not probably an easy time for him having to look over his shoulder all the time. And he's trying to preach the gospel. And these guys, they just keep pushing him, pushing him, pushing him, chasing him. So it says, um, Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within, within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. The Areopagus was like the highest court. Like it was in Athens, it was the place where people went and the philosophers went and they would debate and talk and you had court. And I mean, it was the center of knowledge in that area. So they said, come and speak to us there, for you bring strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, proceeded to preach the famous Sermon on Mars Hill, which is like the next 10 or 11 verses, and I better not read that or we'll be here all day. Now when they heard, and jumping down to verse 32, he says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but other, others said, we, we will hear the, you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. So you see here, guys, Paul, after being chased around by these Jews, he comes to Athens, he preaches his guts out, Preaches what many consider was probably his greatest sermon. Um, and with the exception of a few converts, he basically gets mocked and brushed off. And he just leaves. And I think this may explain Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1-5, through 5, where he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I think there may have been some lofty speech or wisdom operating in the Areopagus. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of, the power, of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, guys, this is what he was coming off of. And he's recounting, as he's writing this letter from Ephesus, he's recounting his state of mind when he came to Corinth. He was pretty beat down, I believe. I mean, I think he probably was, was presented with a lot of lofty, lofty speech and plausible words of wisdom and it wasn't hurting his faith he knew the truth he was just discouraged at the hardness of heart these guys thought they were so smart they thought they knew everything and they just took pleasure in arguing and debating and playing the devil's advocate and, and showing off their intelligence and I think he was a little discouraged but you pick back up in the narrative in chapter 18 it says after this Paul left Athens and went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila and a, and a native a native of Pontus recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he went to see them 
And because he was one of the same because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, this is in Corinth, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, and we just read this earlier, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul. Here are the Jews again. Just keep coming. They made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio, who was no fan of the Jews, is well documented. Um, he said, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And so Gallio was like, you know what? You guys figure this out. And here's what happened. And he drove them from the tribunal and they all seized Sosthenes. The ruler of the synagogue. Okay, so Sosthenes follows Crispus. He does a poor job of presenting the case against Paul. So they all turn and they beat him up right in front of Gallio. That's love. But Gallio paid no attention to this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him Priscilla and Aquila. So Paul stayed in Corinth for 18 months teaching the word of God. And guys, I want, you to, I want you to remember that statement. That's a really important statement. He was there for 18 months. Why? What does Luke say? To teach the Word of God. Simple, right? I mean, was he there to host healing conventions? Did he come in as a, as a great healer? A great worker of signs and wonders? Is that what he was there to do for 18 months? That's not what Luke says. That's not what Paul did. Yeah, he healed. He did some miraculous signs and wonders. But Luke said he was there for 18 months to teach the word to the Corinthian church. Yeah, I mean, he had miraculous apostolic powers. He spoke in tongues, other languages that he didn't know, supernaturally, just overtaken by the Spirit, communicating the gospel to people that did not speak his language and that he did not speak theirs. It happened. We know that happened. But that wasn't his banner. Paul went to Corinth for 18 months to teach the word to people that needed to hear it. God told him, I have people in this city that are mine. Go wake them up with the gospel. And that's what he did for 18 months, diligently, faithfully. And guys, a lot of these things that Paul did that were secondary to that, get all the attention. You, know, you look at 1 Corinthians and... Half the time I hear a sermon preached on 1 Corinthians. Well, I say not half the time because I don't listen to guys that focus on that. But it used to be that, that half the time you, you, would, you would hear about the signs and the wonders and the reasons why you know, these gifts are in operation and, and God still does miracles. And Well, yeah, God still does miracles. God can do whatever He wants. But He put Paul there to preach the Word. And that's what Paul did. That was his primary focus. And that was his focus everywhere he went, guys. And it's because the gospel holds the power of salvation for all men. To the Jew first. And also to the Greek. He knew it. He knew that was our greatest need. It is our greatest need. And that's what he focused on. As to offer healing to the body and never even mention that which heals the soul is a grave tragedy. And there are men who make a lot of money today doing that. Jude talks about him. You should read that. It's real short. One chapter. It's kind of scary. See, Paul's strategy under the guidance of the Holy Spirit was to offer healing to the body so that you could recognize the power of God and receive the healing that you really needed. 
the healing that only the gospel can provide the healing that only faith in Christ can provide an eternal healing what good would it have done a temple prostitute to come and be healed of a transmitted disease only to be turned loose to go back to her old lifestyle or to another form of paganism never hearing the truth about Christ if that was Paul's focus that, that very well could have happened and would have happened you would have just had people in line just getting healed and, and going back to their old form of living and probably becoming worse than they were beforehand as Paul's miracles always accompanied his teaching they always accompanied his teaching they always accompanied his preaching of the gospel they were secondary they were a secondary component to his ministry they were a validating component just like they were in Christ's ministry it validated the messenger it showed this power can only come from God and yeah it was awesome and it was special and it would have been really cool to see that back in those days and God still does miraculous things in the world and we're going to talk about apostleship here in a little bit but I mean no doubt it would have been neat and I think we kind of desire to see God do those things I mean it's almost a human nature like we want to see that we want to experience it but guys those things are secondary they're secondary to the gospel message they're they serve to validate and to authenticate the messenger and the truth about God. So moving on, you see that I mentioned this earlier. The letter to the Corinthian church that we call 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter Paul wrote. Um, we know this because in chapter 5, verse 9, Paul refers to his first letter. And I think some people call it, you see, the first or the third that they call the lost letter. But I think both of them are lost for that matter. But... Um, we don't know where this letter is. We know that he wrote it because he says he wrote it when he wrote 1 Corinthians. Um, so this is actually the second letter he writes back to them. And you just see his heart, his concern. He's writing to these people. He's, he's trying to instruct them. He's trying to do all he can. He's in, he's in Ephesus, but he wants the church in Corinth to do well. And he sends Timothy, and he's, he's sending these people back to check on him and, and to bring news back to him so he knows what's going on. Because he loved them. There were people that Paul, that, that God brought him to, to make disciples of, to, to bring the gospel to, and they, were, they had a special place in his heart. Paul was that way with everyone. All of his, all the churches that he planted, he always stayed in touch. He always had correspondence. He did everything he could to make sure they were growing and walking with God. Once again, it's just an example that we should follow, guys. If you know Christ, you know more than the guy that doesn't, right? You can make a disciple. You can be, you can make an impact on someone's life. And it's not just a one-time thing. It's not just, just flood them with information about who Jesus is and walk away and never talk to him again. That's not the model we see. That's not the model that Paul shows us. Shows us. It's not the model that Jesus shows us. It's not discipleship. And Paul does such a great job in staying on top of these people and keeping up with them and loving them. And you think about what these people were bringing with them into the church, all their past experiences, all their worldliness, all these things, just like we do. Just, just like, just, I mean, we're guilty of the same thing. They had so many issues, as do we. And Paul was so faithful to just walk alongside them. The Holy Spirit just moved in his heart to just love these people and to be patient with them, and to teach them the truth and preach the truth to them. They had a lot of things to work through. And Paul had a lot of issues to deal with. And we're going to see him, guys. This letter is just packed full of stuff, of, of, of you name it. I mean, everything from, from doctrinal issues to, to, to marriage issues. I mean, a lot of things that revolved around sexual relationships. And, I mean, obviously it was a very sensual culture, so they had a lot of questions about that. Um, religion, what was appropriate to do in church, what wasn't. Meat sacrifice to idols. I mean, I mean just from top to bottom it's about every issue you can think of that Paul had to deal with and it kept him busy <laughs> you know you, many of you guys know I'm an IT guy and, and the bulk of what I do the bulk of what I do I guess from day to day um, is I offer support to our clients and so we write a software package for county government um, it's kind of a high tech accounting system um, and there are certain times of the year that it gets really really busy and I'm just coming off actually kind of still in the middle of the time that it's really really busy and sometimes my phone rings so much, like I get so many questions and so many phone calls, I just feel overwhelmed. Like I just can't, I can't answer all these calls. 
Um, and I mean, my voicemails are stacking up, and I'm checking my voicemail, and someone's beeping in, and it's just stacking up, you know, and, and it just overwhelms me. And I just feel like sometimes Paul must have looked at this church, and he must have gotten these reports, and he must have just felt overwhelmed. I mean, you can almost hear it. Like, you know, you can almost just, when you read his letters, you can just almost see, like, his desire just for these people to, to move past these immature things and to start walking with God in, in a more mature way. And he was up to the task. And I think it would have been very easy for Paul to just wash his hands and say, you know what, I'm going to spend my time in Ephesus. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to focus on these people. But he didn't. And he didn't because verse 1 tells us that Paul was called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. He was called by the will of God to do this. He was made by God to do this. And therefore he was equipped to do it. He didn't give up on these people. He was faithful he was, because he was faithful to God and God was faithful to his people. But did you catch that? Called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Guys, Paul was up to the task because God had given it to him. He was called to be an apostle. And God equipped him to be an apostle. And, and guys, apostles were unique men. And this, this is debated. There are some people out there that believe, I think it's, they're, they're becoming less and less, honestly, because you can't really, I mean, you look at the scripture and there's just not, not a case on the other side. But if you look at the qualifications for being an apostle, they were unique. There were three things that had to be in place. You had to have witnessed the resurrected Christ. Christ in person had to choose you. And you were accompanied by his mirac- you were accompanied by the miraculous signs and wonders done by the apostles. Now the third one is debated. Some people think that maybe that wasn't necessarily a requirement. I think the scripture says it is. In Acts 2.43, it says, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. In 2 Corinthians 12.12, Paul, when he's defending his own apostleship, because he's writing a letter back to the Corinthians again, and he's having to defend himself because these so-called super apostles are moving through the area, and they're trying to discredit him and gain a following for their own personal reasons, selfish reasons. He's defending his apostleship, and he says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. These are things that not just everyone can do. They, they came through the apostles. Now, were other people able to do these signs and wonders? I think there's accounts that would say that. There's, there, there are stories of people um, in the early church especially that were, were doing miraculous things and, and, and receiving miraculous things. But the scripture tells us that these things were coming through the apostles. So it's almost like that a lot of these things were directly tied to that ministry. Now, I'm not going to get into the debate right now. I mean, we're, we're going to cover that later of, of the sign gifts and, and, and what we feel about that as pastors and what kind of sojourn stance there. But no doubt God is able, right? God is able to do anything He wants to do. Anything. But the question I would ask you guys is what does God normally do? What does He normally require of His people? To believe. To believe. Most of all of history... Biblical history, you look, and there are just very, very few times, very limited times in history where God chose to do these miraculous things. And there are awesome times. I mean, they're fun to read about. But it's not how God normally related to people. He normally didn't come down as a pillar of fire. He normally didn't part massive seas and raise people from the dead all the time. Like, that wasn't normally how it worked. He was able... And at times he chose to do it that way, but that's not how he normally chooses to operate. So we just have to be careful as we read about these things. And the apostles were men who were able to do the abnormal. I mean, they were able to walk into a place at certain times, and it's, it's, it's kind of a mystery how these gifts worked. But they were able to do these things, and they, and they authenticated and they validated who they were. No one else could do these things. These super apostles that Paul's writing about in Second Corinthians, they can't do the signs of a true apostle. Paul makes the point. He said, I did. I, I performed the signs of a true apostle. You saw the power that came from me and through me. Those guys don't have it because they're not following God. And he's having to defend himself because these guys had crept in. And they were seeking to pull the church away. Once again, you can read about those guys in Jude. But his calling was definitely a, a unique one. He wasn't one of the original twelve. But he was, he was nonetheless just as much of an apostle because these three things were true of his life. He'd seen Christ on his way to Damascus. He had been commissioned by him there. 
And he had done the signs and wonders. And he was no rookie, guys. I mean, you look at Acts 19, 11 and 12. It says that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. What? Like a rag just touched Paul and they carried that back and dropped it on the guy that's dying or the person that was blind from birth and they... They jump up and they're healed, or they jump up and they can see. What an amazing time. I mean, God was doing some amazing things. He was building His church. He was, he was laying a foundation, and it was going to be validated. It was going to be authenticated. Only His power can do those things, and these are His messengers, and they have that power. Believe these men. Believe them. The gospel they preach is true. And that was the point. Those things were signs. They pointed to Christ. They pointed to the gospel. And Paul, he could do it. He was an apostle, no doubt. And I get a kick out of these guys today. And I shouldn't. I mean, it's, it's really sad. But there are guys that, 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 that claim to be apostles like this today. Guys, there's one. I mean, are we, still, are we still building the foundation of the church? Would you say that 2,000 years later that we're still working on the foundation? Because God says the apostles were the foundation, Christ being the cornerstone... And if you really look at that logically, it's Christ is the whole foundation because the apostles were a direct outflow of Christ. But the foundation has been laid. We are building on the foundation. So yes, God's still able to do miracles. He's still able to do what He wants, but those guys had a specific role and that role has come and gone. The church was, was established and it's being built up. And Christ is coming back for it. And when He does, it's going to be an awesome time. And I don't know exactly how that's going to look, but I think it's going to be pretty miraculous. But until that time, we really shouldn't expect to just see a miracle every day in our lives. God's not a genie in a bottle. He doesn't serve to just do miracles. And I, and I, I hear so many people, when they come to 1 Corinthians, that's just all they want to focus on. And that's not the focus. That wasn't the focus of Paul. Those signs and wonders served the focus. They served Christ. They served the gospel message about Him. I believe, guys, that Paul introduces himself as an apostle not because he wishes to brag, but because he wants the readers to understand that what he was writing has been written with the authority of Christ himself. And the Jews and the God-fearers, they should have understood this, you see, because the Hebrew equivalent to apostle is a word, it's a word that's called shiluah, or shiliah, I think is how you can pronounce it. It's a Jewish word, and the Jews had a Sanhedrin, which was a high court, and so the high court had 70 elders and they would meet and they would convene and they would deal with issues in the Jewish culture. So if you had a problem that arose in the synagogue and the local synagogue ruler couldn't handle it, they would pass it on to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would, would give a judgment then they would send a representative back with that decision to that area saying, okay, this is what we decided. We heard the case. This is our representative. He's going to tell you our judgment. That was, a, that was the Shiluah of the Sanhedrin. Paul, that word translated... In the Greek is apostle. So the Jews and the God-fearers, the God-fearers being people who were, were Gentiles but who worshipped God. Maybe they didn't subscribe to all the ritual. They weren't circumcised, but they were worshipping God with the Jews. There were plenty of them, and there were lots of them in Corinth, by the way. Those were the people that God had that were ready. They knew. They knew, that they knew the system. So for Paul to come along and say, I am a representative of God. Like, I am standing as if Christ were standing speaking to you. My words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Like they understood what that meant. And then when he turned around and told the guy to get up and walk, it was lame from birth. And the guy got up and walked, they were like, whoa. Yeah, he is the Shabuah of Christ. He is the apostle. You see how that works? They understood those things. And so when Paul came along and said, I'm an apostle, and then he backed it up with those signs and wonders, they listened to him. He had, he had credit immediately. So if you notice, moving on, we're just about done. Paul introduces himself as an apostle and he introduces another guy named Sosthenes. Um, and that, if you remember guys, there was a guy that was named Sosthenes in Acts here. He was a guy that followed Crispus. And so, if, if you go back and, and if you were to look back at the story, you'd see that Sosthenes was the one that appeared before Gallio. It was after Crispus and his whole family had been converted. And he stands there and he's tasked with the job of trying to stop Paul's ministry. 
Because Paul is like totally disrupting, totally just wreaking havoc in the synagogues and they're trying to stop him. And so they just fast sauce and he needs to go stand before Gallio and try and get a conviction. Well, he fails. And, what, and, and as you remember, what happened was he just gets his head beaten in at the tribunal. Gallio doesn't even pay attention to it. It's happening right there in front of him. I mean, that's what he thought about the Jews. And, he, and Sosthenes was probably getting beaten by the Jews because they were mad that he blew his opportunity to stop Paul. Now, Sosthenes was a fairly common name, so there's not 100% proof that this was the same guy back in Acts. I think that the evidence shows that it is. Um, I believe there's strong evidence to support it. In fact, if you think about it, if anyone could forgive a guy for persecuting Christians, I mean, it could be Paul, right? That's what he was doing before he was converted. And so he probably had pity on this guy. He's, he's, he's there. He's in court. He's watching him getting beaten up by the people that love God because they couldn't get a conviction on Paul. And he probably had great pity on the guy and he wanted to show him mercy. And where did Paul end up? He got, he got frustrated with the Jews at the synagogue in Corinth and so what does he do? He's like, I'm washing my hands of you. But then he moves right next door. I mean, think about that. Did he really wash his hands of the Jews? No. You know he was involved. He wasn't, he wasn't in the synagogue, he was just right next to the synagogue, and you know he was still preaching. And I have a feeling that he probably grabbed Sosthenes and said, look man, I was you. Like, I've walked in your shoes. Here's the truth. And I believe Sosthenes believed. And I think this was the same guy. Because he says, Paul, an apostle called by the will of God, and Sosthenes, he mentions his name. Paul many times had a secretary. He had someone that was educated, someone that could write a secretary, so to speak. And, I mean, as a ruler of the synagogue, you were probably a pretty educated person. Sosthenes just fits in so many ways. And it's just, once again, a testimony of the gospel and the power of God. I mean, one synagogue ruler goes down, another synagogue ruler goes down. I mean, the gospel's just wreaking havoc in Corinth, and it's awesome. And the Jews are upset. And they are upset. And it's no wonder that the people in Corinth, at least early on, didn't struggle with Jewish legalism. I mean, what a blow to the credit of, of Judaism. For the two leaders to get taken down. I mean, there was just a windfall of harvest that was waiting. And God told Paul it was going to happen. And it did. And he addresses his readers here as saints. And those sanctified in Christ in verse 2. In light of all the problems and the issues and the failures and sin, worldliness, bickering, arguing, immaturity, long list of things we'll see in this book, he still addresses them as saints still addresses them as those who are sanctified in Christ. Guys, the root word, sanctified and saint, come from the same root word. It means to make holy. In the aorist, it, it happened at one point in time, and it's that way. It, it, it happened, and it's that way. And that's what Paul's telling him. You believed, therefore you are. And you have all these problems. And I mean, there, I mean you'll see there are lots of problems, bad ones. And yet he still says you're saints. Paul says, I'm writing this to a letter to the people who have been made holy and therefore are holy. I'm writing this to a letter to the people who have been sanctified in Christ. The people who have been made holy in Christ. You see, even in the midst, guys, of all these problems and questions and behavioral issues, in the middle of a desperately wicked city, God still had his people and there was still a church. And it was no less of a church that could be found anywhere else in the world. No less. And he made them holy in Christ because they believed in the one and only Lord and Savior. They were holy because they believed the message Paul brought to them. They believed the gospel. And because of that, they obtained a position that would never change. And Paul immediately starts out with this. Your position is firm. You are saints. You have been sanctified in Christ. And guys, for those of us who believe, so are we. We're firm. We're not going anywhere. God has chosen us. He will keep us to the end. And Paul is communicating that. He's so efficient. Right off the bat. Like I'm about to ruffle some feathers. I'm about to confront you very boldly. And understand I love you. And understand that you are saved. You are saints. You have been sanctified in Christ. Corinth wasn't without a slew of problems but neither were they without their Lord guys and we can say the same thing it's very easy to get discouraged in today's culture with the church guys especially in this country there's a lot of problems but we're no less the church 
We have our problems, but we have our Lord who's faithful to get us through those problems and to keep us to the end. And Paul in verses 8 and 9 tells him, he says, you will, you will be sustained to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. How encouraging is that? And they need it. They needed to hear this. Especially in light of what they were about to hear later. <laughs> but they knew Paul had the authority. God had picked him. He had chosen him. And he said, go and minister to my people in Corinth. Write them letters. Send them people. Disciple them. He was the sent one of God to the church. He had that power, that authority that no one else today has. He wrote half the New Testament. He was an inspired man. He was a sinner. But God used him in great ways. I just pray that God will use us in great ways. And I just want you guys to remember throughout this study that, it's, that there are going to be some hard things. There are going to be some hard things to hear. And there are going to be some disagreements. There are some doctrinal hot spots here in, 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 in the book of Corinthians. But bear with us if you have questions, if you don't agree with something. Don't be mad. Just come talk to us. Let's, let's reason from the scriptures. Let's follow Paul's example. That's all we want to do. We just want to look at what the Bible teaches. And there are things that are up for debate. There are things that aren't just cut and dry and this is the answer. But most things are. And so we want to point you to the Scriptures and we want you to stick with us. This is going to be an awesome study. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you so much for your Word. God, we thank you for men who are faithful to teach it and preach it. We thank you for... Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who came and who started the church and the apostles who were used to, to lay the foundation. God, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for what he did in Corinth. We thank you for the letter that you preserved. Lord, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we can learn and see how to live and how to be more like you. Lord, you came and you died. You bought this church with your blood. Lord, help us to just meditate on that and just allow that truth to change us. Allow your word to change us. It's you that we want to please, God. So, Lord, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, I just pray that you would help us reflect on what you did for us, God, the price you paid. Your body was broken. Your blood was poured out for your bride, us, saints, those who have been sanctified in Christ. Pray that as we take this meal, Father, that we would reflect deeply, seriously. God, your spirit would move in our hearts and just help us, God, to just appreciate the greatness of the cross and what it accomplished. I pray that those here that don't know you would show restraint. Lord, this meal is not for them. And it's not because we don't love them, Lord. It's because they need to take Christ before they take the meal. And so we pray that that would happen. We pray that there be anyone in this, in this crowd that doesn't know you, that has questions. God, I pray that your spirit would draw them even now. Father, that you would draw them into the truth. That they would receive the gospel. And one day just be able to receive this meal with us. We thank you so much, God, for your love and your grace. In Christ's name, amen.